This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Congressional leaders in both parties and both chambers say a continuing resolution is in the cards for the Defense Department and the rest of the executive branch. The ranking Republican on the Senate Appropriations Committee, Richard Shelby, tells Politico, quote, it's going to be a long winter. Senate Appropriations Chair Patrick Leahy says markups could start in his committee next month. The Navy's 355-ship fleet plan is in danger because of budget problems, according to the Chief of Naval Operations. Admiral Michael Gilday tells the House Armed Services Committee the 296-ship total the fleet has now will get smaller without an increase. USNI News reports the Navy's asking for $211 billion for fiscal 2022. The IT platform the Defense Department stood up for the pandemic is officially offline tonight. The department closed down the commercial virtual remote environment at midnight Tuesday. FedScoop reports the department's moved users to a custom version of Office 365. The Army has 102 critical security gaps that it says it'll fix immediately. The annual Hack the Army Bug Bounty event found 238 total cyber vulnerabilities. Rear Admiral Donnell Barrett, U.S. Navy retired as former Deputy CIO of the Navy and former Director of Current Operations at U.S. Cyber Command. Donnell, welcome back. It's good to see you. You're author of Rock the Boat, Embrace Change, Encourage Innovation, and Be a Successful Leader. Is this good news or bad news, Donnell, that these bug bounties found these vulnerabilities? actually great news um, uh, on, a, on a remediation front and in a, in a visibility front because uh, the, in the DOD, just like any big or large organization, we struggle to find you know the best way to automate things to discover vulnerabilities and to fix them quickly. And so to have creative minds crowdsource on the problem, and in this case, um, the annual uh, Hack the Army event, this is the third one the Army's done, the 11th uh, general bug bounty overall under the, uh, the Pentagon program that started back in 2016, but they had, um, you know, 40 top tier security researchers from academia, industry, the military, working for six weeks from January on um, and found those vulnerabilities. And um, they ended up paying out $150,000 this year to civilians who participated and uh, 275 last year in the Army's Hack the, Hack the uh, Army program. So I think it's a good way to incentivize uh, white hat ethical hacking and to help the Navy, Army, Air Force, Marine Corps um, identify vulnerabilities that they might not have otherwise found and, and help to fix those. It's striking to me the amount of money that's involved here from the small size perspective. You know, 150 grand to find serious vulnerabilities strikes me as a tremendous bargain for the Army and for the other departments, right, Danelle? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you paid one contractor to, you know, kind of persistently poke around your network for a while, I mean, you would pay way, way more than that. So. And this is a way to get multiple people with multiple different uh, styles of ethical hacking on the problem and looking at different, uh, looking at from different perspectives and what they're going after. And so I think you get a lot of creative crowdsourcing that way. And a, and a big bang for your buck, honestly, that the real cost is in the remediation and how quickly can you do that? Um, because the cost of a failed network is incalculable. Um, you just said something there that I don't think I knew, and that is that there are different styles of ethical hacking. What does that mean? 
Well, I mean, some people specialize in different types of equipment, different types of protocols, different uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures that an adversary might use. So if you get somebody who's really strong in one area and they go after your network, um, and they're your only guy on the network, well, you may do really well there, but maybe not so well in other areas. Whereas if you have a bunch of ethical hackers going, they're gonna have different strengths in different areas and go after different portions of the network, whether it's a process piece and a privilege piece or a uh, hardware software piece. You mentioned this was the 11th round of this, basically, for the department, across the department. Is there a way to scale this? Is there a way to expand it? Or uh, does it, is it pretty much doing what it's going to do, the, the concept of the bug bounty program? Well, there's two things to think about here. So the bug bounties are sort of isolated events or um, exercises, if you will, or, or uh, things that they do that are for a set time period. Uh, the more enduring issues uh, are sort of like they stood up uh, 5 April of this year. DOD launched the Defense Industrial Based Vulnerability Disclosure Program, which is not a bug bounty, but it is a way to identify for using white hat, white hat ethical hackers to find vulnerabilities on uh, defense industrial based partner networks and DOD networks. And that was uh, a, it's a 12 month pilot. It was established in combination with the DC3, the DIP collaboration sharing environment and the counter Intel security agency all coming together and they're looking at it from a policy, uh, how to, you know, they have channels to report and a process for remediation. So it's it's more of a long-term enduring um, uh, program, if you will. And and that program honestly has already 2,000 participants already signed up. And uh, and like the bug bounty, which has found over the years, uh, 27,000 vulnerabilities, about 70% of which were, were deemed to be valid. Uh, we think, and those were isolated events that we think a long-term program like the vulnerability disclosure program is going to do much, much better at that. The, it, what it sounds like as you describe that is that this concept is now embedded into the security posture, the security process of the department. Is that a fair estimation on my part? Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, there've been policy changes that have come out about that. Um, OMB memo M2032 came out and it said that vulnerability disclosure programs are among the most effective ways, uh, methods to obtain new insights on cybersecurity vulnerabilities and the best for return on investment, similar to what you were talking about. And, um, you know, we see, uh, we're seeing some other things from big government, which will help us as well. Um, you know, uh, Representative uh, uh, Ted Lieu from California just recently on June 1st put in a, a, a proposal for a law for improving contractor cybersecurity act and if that becomes law, it would require VDP programs and participation by federal contractors. And one other helpful note was that the Supreme Court recently narrowed the scope of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act to protect those well-intentioned, ethical, white hat hackers um, from being prosecuted for investigating vulnerabilities. So we're seeing systemically that this is something that the U.S. government, not just DOD, needs to be taken care of. We have about a minute left, Danelle. What will you watch moving forward as all of these various stakeholders consider their next steps? Well, what I'm most interested in is, you know, um, getting a coordinated policy. You know, CISA has some policy they put out in um, the Cyber Information Security, Infrastructure Security Agency put out in September. Um, and they're also looking to how this works with um, our critical infrastructure folks, you know, how we would have that same kind of vulnerability program. But from a realistic standpoint, what we really need is industry to help us with commercial solutions that will automate our checking of the network. So we don't have to have specific bug bounties. We don't have to have specific hackers going after it. We can have machines helping us with that and automating it and automating the responses, even to the point where they can calculate in 
what would the operational impact of that be if we did that? Because sometimes for operational reasons, you can't shut down a network to remediate something, something's too important. So, you know, how do we use automation to help us with that and get to a zero trust environment? That's really what we need. Danelle, thank you very much as always. It's great to have you back. Thank you very much for having me, appreciate it. Coming next, the Pentagon's worldwide cloud strategy straight ahead on Government Matters, laying the groundwork for JADC2. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Worldwide data availability for any shooter anytime is the end goal of the Defense Department's new outside the continental United States cloud strategy. One defense cloud expert calls that new strategy awesome to see. Rob Slaughter's former director of the Air Force's Platform One program. Rob, welcome. It's great to see you. Awesome to see is pretty powerful language for a cloud guy. Why did you think that was the case with this cloud strategy? Well, I just thought it was uh, very forward leaning. I, I felt like um, it captured a lot of uh, a lot of the vision over what our strategy needs to be. Um, you know, obviously it was focused on the OCONUS activities, but I think a lot of the, the the same principles obviously apply to the CONUS activities as well. And that's the next question that I had for you. What's the difference between theoretically, not necessarily regarding this exact document? What's the difference between OCONUS and CONUS when it comes to this type of strategy? When it comes to this type of thinking? Okay, I, I think the, the biggest difference is really the, the emphasis on, on tactical and the, the emphasis on uh, what you're assuming from a sort of an adversarial perspective. Um, I think a lot of the, the CONUS side cloud discussions is really, really heavily focused on enterprise IT. Um, from an availability standpoint, obviously everyone wants um, everything available as much as possible. Um, but if your email goes down for, for 10 minutes, it's not necessarily a a life and death um, sort of uh, situation. Um, for CONUS activities though, um, things become a lot more serious, um, which is exactly why um, all of the ops centers that are around globally are, are heavily, heavily focused on having access to the IT and the equipment that their lives sort of rely upon. And so to, to bring cloud into the discussion and to bring some of these um, concepts over, you know, really cloud native, because um, that's sort of another aspect that I think um, the, you know, the recent guidance is really referring to is not necessarily cloud management from a cloud broker, but cloud native. Um, so that way you can more rapidly deploy anywhere, including the edge, and still sort of maintain the same sort of uh, software field um, from a user's perspective. So, so to me, the biggest difference CONUS, uh, between CONUS and OCONUS from a strategy perspective is the focus on edge and the focus as rightfully so on, on availability and security, um, just ensuring that, that those systems are at all point uh, available. Now I noted what you talked about, about the edge when I read through this strategy. What also struck me was the fact that it's not just a cloud strategy. A lot of discussion here about software, a lot of discussion here about what the cloud facilitates. That's a good move, isn't it? Because I would argue maybe not too long ago, three, five years ago, the focus not just in the department, but across the federal government was on the cloud as the vehicle 
and not on what it facilitated. It was on the, the cloud as a, as a structure. Is that a fair read, do you think? Uh, I, I think absolutely. Like one of the things that the article specifically put out was that that software delivery to an aircraft in flight was a critical need, which I thought was incredibly forward leaning and something that I think is quite controversial, um, especially for those people who who are pilots who who have gone through the horrors of, of being in the DoD and seeing how terrible software is sort of delivered. The thought of being flying on a weapon system and 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 receiving a software update is is quite you know, quite a terrifying sort of proposition uh, to those folks. But by just stating that, the key objective here is that means that from a, you know, from a software delivery perspective, that type of stuff has to become standard. The other thing I think it kind of starts assuming is the importance of unmanned aerial, aerial systems and UAS systems. Um, because if you remove the pilot from the cockpit, some of those concerns drastically get away. Um, and, and to me, there's really two reasons why you want to look at rapid software delivery and those types of systems and those types of environment. Um, the first is on the offensive competitive edge. Um, think of you know two UAS, UAS systems sort of going after each other. Um, at the end of that sort of combat, or actually even during um, those engagements, those systems can be learning. Those models can be adjusted. Um, if you don't actually have sharing of either the data or updates to the algorithms, then in your next contest, which which could be you know 30 minutes later, it could be 24 hours later, it could be a week later, um, you don't actually have any of those insights. So the ability to deliver software in a rapid, rapid rate to to, to me in, in 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 the strategy becomes sort of a foundational need going forward. This is more a philosophical question than a strategic question, Rob. What makes those updates? less controversial? What makes them less scary for the pilot in the cockpit? Is it just seeing a couple of times that it works or is there more to it than that? Um, I think the DOD as, as an entity, as a community, just needs to get better at software delivery. I, 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 I'm super proud of what, where the community is, is going and you know, from where we, what we came from say three or five years ago, I think it's, I think it's incredibly impressive um, how much progress we've made, but I think there's a lot, a lot more that needs to get accomplished. Like delivering software um, to anywhere, any DoD systems should not be something that people are afraid of, but they are, and they are for good reason. And and so I think as a community, we just need to get better at delivering IT systems. And as we get better and better and better, um, we can earn the trust of the operational customer. Rob Slaughter, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you. Appreciate it, sir. You can find a link to the Pentagon's Oconus Cloud Strategy at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, a new Navy Secretary nominee faces some of the same old problems. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the tasks ahead for Carlos del Toro. Welcome back. The Biden administration's nominee to become Navy secretary is a historic selection for a couple of reasons. If the Senate confirms Carlos del Toro, though, 
he'll face some of the same old problems. Captain Jerry Hendricks, U.S. Navy retired, is vice president of the Telemus Group. He's former director of the Secretary of the Navy's advisory panel and author of the book To Provide and Maintain a Navy, Why Naval Primacy is America's First Best Strategy. Jerry, welcome. It's good to see you again. Why is the selection of Carlos del Toro as Navy Secretary historic? Well, it's, uh, first of all, um, he will be the second uh, Latino um, secretary. Uh, and then also he's going to be only the second uh, individual who has previously commanded a Navy warship to be secretary of the Navy. Uh, Graham Clayton, uh, who served as secretary of the Navy during the Carter administration, uh, had commanded a destroyer escort in World War II. Uh, but uh, but uh, Mr. Del Toro is is a little bit more uh, distinguished. Uh, he commanded. He was a pre-com, pre-commissioning commanding officer of a Arleigh Burke class destroyer, which means that he was picked as one of the elite surface warfare officers of the Navy to see his ship through its commissioning process. Commanded it for a full tour. Was selected for promotion to captain and was selected for major command to go on to become a destroyer squadron CO when he made the choice to leave the Navy and then actually built a very successful business. Uh, he and his wife uh, created a, a very successful uh, business in support of the government. Um, and so he has uh, succeeded both in the Navy and in industry. So it's a unique uh, sort of DNA that he's bringing to the job. Um, he, he knows port from starboard. He understands the Navy and its culture. And if there's going to be an individual who can move the ball down the field so far as growing the Navy, and investing the new technologies that we need, I think that Carlos del Toro is a man who can do that. And that's especially necessary, it strikes me, given what the Chief of Naval Operations said this week. The 296-ship fleet that uh, the Navy has now will get smaller, Admiral Gilday said, if the budget stays flat. That, the challenge there is the Navy in the budget request didn't ask for a whole lot of money to build ships. What's that balance look like moving forward, do you think, Jerry? Well, as, sec, uh, as uh, Chief of Naval Operations Gilday said yesterday, uh, we're going to get smaller. If the budget remains flat, the Navy is going to get smaller. And, and that's simply the, the basic fact of the matter. Uh, we are facing sort of a crisis in the sense that the Navy is overstretched. Uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps yesterday made the point uh, that he simply cannot do more. In fact, has to make the strategic decision to do less uh, in order to keep the Marine Corps in balance. And I think that 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 situation falls upon the Navy right now as well. If the Navy is going to do more, if it's going to meet the requirements that are established by the regional combatant commanders, whether it's Indo-PACOM or our Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, then in fact, the Navy needs to have more money. And in fact, the CNO called that out. Uh, he, in, in a direct question to him as to how much it would take in order to grow the Navy, he said that we would need somewhere around 4.5% growth year over year for the next 20 years. And I ran the numbers, and that would, in fact, get us to about 355 in about 20 years. If we wanted to grow quicker, then we would need more money, perhaps 6% year over year. So it was a really uh, enlightening uh, hearing yesterday. First of all, both sides, bipartisan, uh, were really on the Navy leadership about what will it take to grow, that the congressional requirement is 355. 
and the Navy simply is not towing the line to come up with a solution that gets us there. I want to be clear. I did not mean to suggest that Admiral Gilday thought that the 296-ship fleet we have now getting smaller is a good idea. Uh, he was advocating for increasing the size of the fleet. What's the disconnect then? If that's where the Navy wants to go and that's where Congress wants to go, what's the gap, Jerry? Well, the gap is essentially in the Department of Defense's top line. Uh, there can argument be made that the, the DOD is not receiving enough money to meet all of, the requ uh, of its requirements or commitments. Uh, the other point could be is that within the Department of Defense budget, we are simply not allocating the money correctly, that we should be moving money around between the services uh, in order to address the crisis or the challenge that we face now. Given the fact that we're facing China in the Pacific, uh, Indo-Pacific region, which is essentially maritime, then an argument can be made, and in fact, I have made it elsewhere, that we ought to be shifting money essentially from the land component to the maritime component, as well as to the Air Force, because those are the ones that are going to be operating most consistently in these commons area, whether it's the air or the seas, um, going forward. And so I think we have to allocate resources accordingly. Everything old is new again, isn't it? That's the A2AD argument we've been having for 20 years or longer, isn't it, Jerry? Well, it is, um, but it's also an argument that goes back to the 1950s when uh, General Eisenhower, when he was president, actually reallocated a lot of money uh, away from the land component and towards the Navy and to the Air Force at that time in uh, recognition of the specific challenges of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. It's also a challenge that President Reagan saw in the 90s when he saw that the competition in the Cold War was moving once again to the sea and to the air. This is a cyclic thing. We've seen it over and over again. It's just a matter of time until we all recognize the strategic environment that we're in and that we move and reallocate accordingly. Captain Hendricks, great to see you as always, my friend. Thank you. It's good always to see you, Francis. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it at govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.
You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.